0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. I'm your host, Andy McCabe. And I'm Allison Gill. Uh, there's a lot going on directly
1: with the special counsel probe, and peripherally as well, Andrew. We're going to cover it all today, including what Ken Cuccinelli might be telling the Jack Smith grand jury based on his January 6th committee deposition transcript, which I've gone through with a fine-tooth comb, and what tools the Department of Justice has that the January 6th committee doesn't have to compel this testimony. We know there's been a lot of behind-the-doors privilege fights.
0: Nice. And we will also be discussing Trump crimes, but not the ones that you're thinking of. We're We're talking now about the ones that may have been investigated under the Durham probe. Right. Remember him? Uh, we're going to talk about how the Pence documents impact the investigation and the two Trump documents found at the storage facility near Mar-a-Lago are not going to be a part of the special counsel criminal investigation. But before we get to all that, let's answer a listener question back to our uh, our now routine beginning of this show with a listener question. The questions continue to impress me. We get all kinds of topics that come in, uh, a few of them hit on this question, so I'm going to lead off with Lee G, who is both an MD and a PhD. Well, well done, Lee. And Lee writes in, and what was his second question, regarding Trump, Biden, and now Pence document scandals, it seems the legal distinction pivots on intent and response to possession. If so, then why not simply charge for obstruction in Trump's case and not, if the facts support, in the Biden and Pence cases. Side note, obstruction charges left for Mueller seem to have been forgotten, just saying. Well, uh, well pointed out, Lee. Um, I don't think we've forgotten them, but it seems like a lot of other people have moved on. Mm. Nevertheless, your question raises a number of really um, important issues that I think are helpful to, to remind folks of when we're s- sorting through the ever more confusing landscape of. Document cases. Now we're on we're up to three. So, of you are rightly that the document cases typically run. Um, they come down to a question of intent, no matter what charges you're looking at. So, if you're looking at mishandling classified information, which of course requires that the information be classified, um, and then it all, and then depending on what part of the statute you use. It also requires either the taking of classified documents or the unlawful storage of classified or the refusal to give them back. Or, as in the Trump case, we've also seen references to the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act doesn't require that the documents be classified. It simply requires that it be national defense information. Nevertheless, in all of these, under all these different statutes, the standard or the requirement for intent is the same it must be knowing and willful so if you're talking about maybe removing classified documents the act of removal which you are alleged to have committed must have been with knowledge and intent so you must have known that you were taking them and you must have intended to take them that's very different from something like motive which is a question about why did you take the documents Motive, of course, is not a requirement under any of these offenses, but intent absolutely is. So now let's apply this to these cases. What makes the Trump case so wildly different from seemingly both the Biden and Pence cases is that as he normally does, Trump seems to have painted himself into a corner here where he's almost... um, basically admitted his intent, at least in retaining these documents. So the public statements that he's made along the lines of, you know, these are mine, I don't have to give them back, or uh, reportedly telling his staff to bargain with the National Archives, I'll give you these things back if you declassify a bunch of Russia case documents, Um, or even his somewhat nonsensical claims of having uh, declassified. All of those statements um, basically eliminate his ability to argue inadvertence. Inadvertence would be a defense to these uh, to these charges because it's like, hey, I didn't know I had them. I didn't know I had taken them. And therefore, you didn't have the um, the requisite intent to be guilty of any of these offenses. It seems now these investigations are ongoing, and so we have no idea where they will end up. But just by the information we have in the public record regarding President Biden, and now also seems to be similar in the situation with former Vice President Pence, both camps have said that their person, Biden or Pence, didn't know that they had the documents in their possession. In Pence's case, there seems to be some facts that support that. They were in the box that they were originally packed in the boxes were, were, had remained sealed from the time that they left uh, the vice president's residence. So there, there are some facts to support his uh, or his staff's claim that they didn't know what was in the box. And it's a similar situation with President Biden. He's come out and said that he didn't even know he had these things. He didn't know where they were. And, and he had, of course, no intention to take them out of the White House and take them either to his office or his residence. Um, so that piece alone draws a huge distinction between the kind of legal footing on the Pence and Biden side versus the legal footing on the Trump side. And that's before you even get to the issue of cooperation. Trump, of course, not only has not cooperated, he's obstructed every effort by the archives and by DOJ to get that stuff back, which is why he ended up with a search warrant at his house. And the Biden and Pence situations, as soon as they discover the documents, They called the archives or the Department of Justice, had them, you know, appropriately um, recover those documents and then have cooperated with things like searches and that sort of stuff. So that's really, you know, in a nutshell, some very significant differences in terms of the directions that these cases are likely to go.
1: Yeah. And a couple of things. First, I want to address the, uh, you know, the Mueller obstruction, uh, volume two thing. And and we've talked a little bit about this before. Back in 2019, when Bill Barr, right after he was appointed, he came in and he had uh, whipped up an office legal counsel memo with the pay dag O'Callaghan at the time uh, and some other guy over there at DOJ saying, if we could prosecute a president, we would decline to prosecute in this instance. And they gave a bunch of really terrible uh, reasons that made no factual sense within the law, but it was their prosecute trust, uh, prosecutorial discretion. And that was the memo that they wrote, and that was their declination decision. Uh, even though you couldn't even hypothetical like do a hypothetical about it because you they weren't going to indict him anyway so that that's actually why the, the memo got out in the first place was there was an argument that it couldn't have been a deliberative process because you were hype you know you were doing a hypothetical situation about you know things that don't exist so that's why we were able to see that memo but uh that is that declination decision is something that could have made it difficult for garland to come in and ignore that declination decision or overturn it or somehow reopen the case. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we talk uh, later in the show about Durham and an investigation that happened that we didn't know about until this week as well, uh, and that we haven't seen a declination decision on. But uh, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, Andrew, how, how difficult it is for a new AG to come in and overturn a, a, a declination decision from a previous attorney general without giving the DOJ a black eye. We'll talk a little bit about that. But- with regard to these non, uh, this particular uh, when you're when you're talking about intent, and you said his public statements like, "Well, they're mine. I'm not giving them back." Uh, okay, you know that all of that stuff goes against his own case that he, you know, he can't say, "I didn't know they were there." That's right. But another That's right. thing too is, and they were arguing this in the Eleventh Circuit, is, uh, and the Eleventh Circuit agreed. Trump appointees on the Eleventh Circuit agreed that the reason that they needed the non-classified documents back was because that is also evidence to show possession or intent or ownership or that you knew that you had these documents, because if you have these classified documents commingled in your desk that you use for work with more recent documents and your passports, let's say, then that is those non-classified documents are actually evidence that you possessed these classified documents that were mixed in with them and knew they were there. And that brings me to my third point, which is something we found out this week that Jack Smith is not going to be investigating. And those are those two classified documents that were marked secret, uh, that were found at a off-site of Mar-a-Lago in a public storage facility by uh, a couple of quote-unquote private investigators that Donald Trump had hired to search his additional properties for classified documents pursuant to a court order by Chief Judge Beryl Howell, who is head of the grand juries over there at the D.C. Circuit. Now, what Jack Smith has decided, or the DOJ has decided, is that those two documents that were found in that sealed box are not going to be part of the criminal probe into Donald Trump and his classified documents debacle. And the reason is, is because it's a lot like Pence's documents and probably Biden's documents. They, they've they been in a sealed box this whole time. Donald Trump likely knew, didn't know they were there. They weren't commingled with more current documents in his desk or something that he's been using on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis. I don't know how often he does work. But anyway, in his, you know, in, in they're, they're often a storage facility yeah, in a taped up it box. It depends on what you consider work
0: as well. I mean, like, who <laughs> Do you knows? Remember what when that, he was in the hospital? That's how bunch you define of... that at Mar a Lago. Remember
1: when he was at Walter Reed with a bunch of blank documents, like pretending to work? Okay. So, yeah, at his little tiny desk. But regardless, when, when those two documents were found, you and I, Andrew, were like, that's probably not a crime. They've probably been in there since they left Washington. He probably didn't even know they were there. You have to show you know that uh, the, uh, willful intent right and and so the That's announcement right. from the de- from right. from Jack Smith and maybe that means that Jack Smith actually got the names of those two private investigators and interviewed them and has decided this isn't a crime i don't know any of that is speculation but they're not pursuing that as a crime and and again that has to do with what you were just talking about which our listener asked about which is intent
0: Yeah, you know, he has so much to work with. There's no reason to infuse two more documents that were recovered under entirely different circumstances, which may have been, you know, non-nefarious. It just, as a strategic matter, as you're thinking about building this case, if in fact they are building towards an indictment, it's just a messy kind of side fact that doesn't add any bite or impact or significance to the case that you're bringing, um, there, as you know, Ag, there are so many things. There's some, you know, there's a million other aspects of these that we haven't gone into. We could spend the whole day talking about them. But like, I get asked a lot: Does the does the question of quantity matter in these cases of you know mishandling cases or, or what have you? And technically, it doesn't. It's you know, it's the same offense if it's one document or if it's a hundred documents. Um, but Practically, it makes a big difference, because you get back to trying to show intent. It's one thing to say I had a dozen or 20 or maybe even 30 documents squirreled away in boxes that were being stored in the closet of the conference room next to the office that I sometimes went to. That's kind of the Biden situation. It's very different to find several hundred documents in the office that you are occupying on a day-to-day basis, some of which are found in the top desk drawer, documents in plain sight that you would have seen any time you open that drawer in all the many, many times you've been in that office in the weeks and months and whatever year leading up to their seizure during the search warrant. So yeah, uh, uh, quantity does matter. And it can be relevant to this issue of intent.
1: And I think it's even more relevant when we talk about obstruction, Andy, right? Because we found 100-plus yep. documents after a subpoena was issued and an attestation was signed saying we've handed over all the classified documents. And and it by the way, it wasn't classified. It wasn't handed over all the classified documents. It was handed over all the documents with classified markings. So even if right. Donald Trump right. declassified them with that January 19th declassification memo for the Russian documents that he signed the day before he left office, or if he declassified them with his mind, irrelevant. The subpoena called for any documents with classified markings. And it, you, you, know, you yeah. at, at that point, you can't take a sharpie and demark the classified <laughs> documents. Right, right.
0: And, and think about the sequence. He had all this stuff. And then in January, he sends 15 boxes back. And at that point retained a boatload of classified so that, that alone, we know from reporting that he was involved in the review of that material before it went back. That alone gives an makes, puts, um, the retention of classified in the context of a, of an intentional decision to retain those things. Then they come down for the big beating. They're handed the infamous binder of that's all we have left. Rep- so but now you have lawyers representing to the government. There are no more classified documents here. This is it. This is the final package. It's one red weld envelope full of stuff. And then later the search warrant, they find hundreds more. Like, so these are like multiple intentional acts of, you know, retention of of classified yeah. marked documents. So it's 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 in a totally different league than the other two, which are really Honestly, I'm surprised that we haven't had many more former senior senior executives um, from the former administration and you know any other administration to be perfectly honest, uh, calling up with the same problem.
1: Yeah, and in that vein, um, Andrew, the National Archives has now put out a statement, put out letters, written a letter to former presidents and vice presidents, saying, "Hey." You might want to search your homes and your offices. Let us know if you've got any outstanding classified material. And as we went yeah. over in the previous thing, you had said that they don't serialize these things and sign them out unless they're code word classified. So that is um, maybe something that this administration could uh, do as kind of a moonshot. Maybe we could digitize our security apparatus. Uh, we, you know, we did it with our health records uh, for the government. Maybe we could do it with uh, our classified But um, I think it should be addressed and I think it would be a good time for it to be addressed by this administration. But um, something else that came up, and I have a question in the uh, reporting from Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, uh, is talking uh, talking about how uh, perhaps Trump is indicating that by removing the document from its classified folder, that in effect declassifies it it also might explain why there were so many empty uh, classification folders that were found. Uh, And so I was wondering, and I'm sorry if this is a stupid question, but does removing a classified document from its folder that's marked classified declassify that document?
0: Yes, but only if you wave your hands over it (laughs) six times and snap your fingers while looking to your left. (laughs) Uh, no, obviously, I'm I'm being a little facetious here. The folder has no significance to the substance of the document. The document is classified by an OCA, and, and in all likelihood, 90%, I'm, gu- I'm guessing here, of the huge majority of classified documents that are out there, they're actually, they're classified by virtue of what we call derivative classification. So like, you know, you've looked at a piece of raw intelligence that's been classified by an OCA, and then you write up an analysis about it, you when your references to that original piece of intelligence have to be at the same, you have to classify your analysis at the same level. And anything you then put into that analysis, the overall document takes the highest um, classification that's in the document. Each paragraph is portion marked, so each paragraph has a, indicator of its classification level, and the highest paragraph, that's what, you know, that's what the document becomes. And sometimes they're perforated, too, where you can remove a bit of it
1: to make it not yeah. classified. But I don't think that that's what we're talking about here.
0: Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. That's a specific thing called a classified line, And it has to be like laid out in the classified portion of the document, why you have a line and like, who was supposed to get it? We would do those all the time for, we'd have maybe case information and counterterrorism, and we would want to share it with a foreign partner. So you write up a communication to your LEAD, that's the FBI agent that works overseas, and the location you want to share the information, and it would have everything, at all the appropriate classification levels. And then at the bottom, it would have a tear line, which was like basically a watered-down version of the information to get it to an unclassified level. And that's what the League app was approved to basically transmit to the foreign government. So these are not just like things that you can do in your head, you know on the, it's all it's very um, methodical, and there are very clear rules and processes on all these things, you know, which is why even these even these alleged inadvertent mistakes by like the ones we're talking about with Pence and Biden. These are bad things. They shouldn't be happening. It's sloppy. It's potentially a risk to national security. It has to be taken seriously and cleaned up in the way that, um, you know, the intelligence community knows how to do. Um, but do people have to be charged criminal for every single one of these? No, I can tell you they, they don't. We get The FBI gets referrals every time there's a, a spill of classified information like this. And the vast majority of them, you immediately investigate. You you do a damage assessment to see if there's been damage to national security, and then you look into the how did this happen and and why did it happen and who's responsible. And the most cases don't end with criminal charges. They might end with disciplinary actions in that person's you know uh, agency where they work. You might even, if it's really bad, you might lose your access to classified over it, and that's that can negatively impact your career. But um, it happens. People are human beings. They make mistakes. And, um, you know, you just got to deal with it.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, let's even say that like the pardon power, uh, which is very broad for a president, uh, we, we, you know, we had often asked the question during the Mueller investigation, but can you pardon with corrupt intent? And, you know, it seems so far, yeah, you can't like you that's your presidential power. And And I'm wondering if the same I feel like we've seen that. Yes. And I I think the same maybe goes goes for declassification, meaning now there are things that a president cannot declassify. We know that. Uh, But let's say that these are things that a president can declassify, can you know, it's important for us to know why he declassified these Russian documents. But I don't know that that's necessarily a crime, even if he did it corruptly. Uh, but, you know, perhaps he did it uh, so he could give it to people who shouldn't have access to it. We should need to know that. We should want to know that information. Um, but again, I, I think those are more impeachable offenses. The real crime here is the obstruction yeah. and the concealment uh, and destruction and possibly um, the uh, the 793 uh, espionage. Yeah. And and that's, I think, what what we're mainly looking at. But you know, I, because those those three crimes, we have to remind people that were on that search warrant affidavit in August, August 8th of last year for Mar-a-Lago, do not require any of the documents to be classified. Mishandling of classified documents was not a crime on that affidavit. And so I think what they were mainly looking for is obstruction. And remember, 793 espionage carries a 10 year max, 1519 obstruction twice as long 20 year max. And that's because often the cover up is worse than the crime how long have we been saying that
0: yes since uh, 1973 mm-hmm. I think <laughs>
1: yep. all right well excellent questions that we get from from our listeners honestly keep sending them in to us at hello at mulellersherote.com just put Jack in the subject line any final thoughts on this question before we take a break Andrew
0: then and no I think you hit it right I mean I, I yes the president has extraordinary authority To classify or declassify almost everything. There are those rare categories of uh, like nuclear information and things that he can't, but most everything else, the president is the absolute ultimate decider of what's classified and not classified. However, he loses all that authority the day he leaves office. So, all this stuff that, that was supposedly done after Trump left office, he's just a regular Joe and he has to answer to the DOJ in the same way the rest of us would.
1: Agreed. All right. Thanks for that. And again, thanks to the listener for sending in that question. Again, you can send them into to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Put Jack in the subject line. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Stay with us. Everybody, welcome back to Episode 9 of Jack. I am Allison Gill. And today in this particular segment, we are going to talk about uh, somebody who was spotted outside the Prettyman Courthouse in D.C., who had said they were talking to the grand jury. And this is Jack Smith's grand jury investigating the 2020 election. And uh, that was Ken Cuccinelli. Tell me, tell us a little bit about uh, Ken Cuccinelli,
0: Andrew. Ken Cuccinelli is a, was kind of a rising star, I think, in the Republican Party, certainly in Virginia, had a, a, a pretty, um, Hotly contested uh, shot at the governor's mansion, which I think he lost to McAuliffe, if I have that right. Uh, if my Virginia politics is uh, is accurate, um, but he he's a pretty very very conservative guy, kind of uh, um, bit of a carries himself as a bit of a tough guy. In any case, he took a high level position in DHS in the Trump administration. He was kind of, I want to say, like maybe the number two or three guy in DHS. And he was clearly there to kind of make sure that the, you know, the Trump agenda at DHS was pushed forward.
1: Yeah, uh, I think he was the guy who wanted to rewrite the poem on the bottom of of the Statue of Liberty about immigrants uh, uh, saying, no, don't bring us your poor, not too poor, uh, you know, th- or something <laughs> or- asshole-ish. Uh.
0: Norway only or something yeah. like that. I don't <laughs> Norway, know, but um... no,
1: Norway and Sweden only, please. Yeah, it was. He's that guy. He's trying to push Stephen Miller, uh, Stephen Miller's and and Donald Trump's uh, very uh, xenophobic agenda uh, at at DHS. <clears throat> and uh, of course, DHS. I believe the Secret Service falls up under the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, DHS founded it does. after nine eleven. Um, in response to 911 after the 911 commission was uh, created uh, we had the DhS and the dNI right somebody to sit atop all of the intelligence agencies to get everybody on the same page um, which is now that's an interesting uh, it's time I think time to maybe revamp that but anyhow I, like every 20 years we should just go through and like sort of clean up bureaucracies and rearrange them I think because the rule books just get bigger and bigger over time and this is just an old government employee
0: uh, kvetching about it. but Yeah, they, they do. And DHS is a behemoth, has been since day one. It's always been unruly, hard to manage. And they have a lot of um, controversial, you know, missions. They've got the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They have Customs and Border uh, Protection. And, of course, they also have the Border Patrol, and that puts you right in the white hot center of all things immigration, and that's really, I think, in my my recollection, that's what Cuccinelli was sent over there to kind of keep a watchful eye on. Um, so, yeah, he was he was a key player, really uh, uh, a White House plant in DHS to kind of mind this shop.
1: Yeah, and so he has, you know, testified before the January sixth committee and now has been seen testifying before Jack Smith's grand jury. And so I was like, I was wondering, like, what is it that he, what information would he have that Jack Smith would be interested in? And so what I did was I went through the January 6th, 150-page transcript of his his deposition to the January 6th committee, and, and I pulled out everything that he claimed privilege on. And the reason I did that is because Those are the questions that the DOJ is going to be better equipped to get the answer to. Andrew, can you talk a little bit about some of the tools the Department of Justice has that the January 6th Select Committee would not have to get information from somebody who was either pleading the 5th, which he did not do, or was uh, asserting executive
0: privilege? Sure. So let's get the uh, the 5th out of the way first, even though it sounds like he didn't use it. If you are subpoenaed in front of the grand jury, of course you are sworn in and you have to tell the truth. If you say anything, you know, if you make a false statement that can be held against, you can be prosecuted for that. So it's, it's common for people who think they might run into some sort of criminal trouble for, in relation to the questions they've been asked to claim the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and, and using that to not answer the question you've been asked. What the department can then do if they really, really want your answer is they can immunize you. They can grant you immunity from any sort of criminal liability that may result from answering the questions that they're asking you. And once they have done that, you can no longer refuse to answer the question. You have to answer the question. And if you refuse at that point, um, you know, you can be held in contempt. So that's how they can get past the Fifth Amendment if they're willing to sacrifice going after you. And that's something that it doesn't happen a lot, but it's not you know completely unheard of either. Um, typically, when they're more interested in someone else above you in the food chain who might be a more significant target.
1: That makes sense, yeah, because we saw this sort of pan out with the pleading the fifth with Kash Patel, right? Right. Because he he went in, pled the fifth, uh, presumably about document declassif- declassification, but we aren't exactly sure. It could have been intent. Um, or, you know, we learned recently that uh, Donald Trump was very angry that he couldn't get everything declassified on January 19th. And that could have been um, what motivated him to take these documents with him. But, you know, uh, I think Meadows returned the bulk of them or ran back and returned the bulk of them to, to DOJ. I'm not sure. We, we, it's, it's kind of unclear reporting at this point. Uh, but so Kash Patel bled the fifth the the doj jack smith went to the judge and said he can't plead the fifth there's no he's not gonna there's no way we could prosecute the answers to these questions the judge disagreed and so they uh-huh. granted kash patel limited immunity but that doesn't mean that the judge will always disagree if you if you argue with the, you'd argue to the court that the answer to this question could never lead to a criminal prosecution Sometimes, I, I, I haven't heard this happening, I've not seen it done yet, or I don't know of an instance of where it's happened, but sometimes the judge will say, yeah, you can't plead the fifth right there. But anyway, that's, that's all about the fifth. But let's, let's yeah. go to that second piece about yep. the privilege battles, because we know from public reporting that Jack Smith and, and the DOJ, Garland, before uh, Jack Smith was appointed, has been, have been fighting some privilege battles behind closed doors. They're still all sealed proceedings
0: yeah the really frustrating thing for me about these privilege claims is when they come up in the context of like a congressional interview or testimony you you really can't resolve them at the table so if the witness brings says I'm not going to answer on the grounds of whatever privilege the committee or the uh, whoever's doing questionings kind of stuck with it and I saw that in a very personal way when I was um wasn't subpoenaed, but I was requested to come in and testify in front of the House Intelligence Committee in December of 2017. And they had a lot of questions about, you know, the investigations, uh, the Clinton email investigation, Crossfire Hurricane, things like that. And also about um, uh, Jim Comey's interactions with Trump. And so I remember being under questioning from Adam Smith. And of course, I had my Department of Justice minder sitting on my right side. It's kind of like, you know, so almost like being a tourist in North Korea, you don't really actually get to do well, what do you want. Um, and being asked very directly by by Congressman Schiff what what Jim Comey had told me about his conversation with Donald Trump. Now that's not privileged under any. Th- there's no. Uh, reasonable uh, i think claim of privilege there because we're talking about a conversation between me and director comey it's not covered by executive privilege and but of course the department refused to let me answer and claimed executive privilege and so the doj minder who was a lawyer named scott schools got into a deep argument with uh, adam schiff over this and it was it's very frustrating i was happy to tell the committee what i knew and but I was not being allowed to answer the question by DOJ, and Schiff was basically like, "That's not privileged." And schools is like, well, we we are maintaining that it is. And you know, that's where the conversation ended. and And that was I couldn't answer because my my bosses are saying you may not. Uh, and And so that's kind of the situation that all these congressional committees are. They don't have a lot of legal tools to be able to quickly kind of parse through that. It's different in the grand jury. Um, you know, you can stop the testimony. You can you can go to the judge to have these issues of privilege resolved. Like right then, um, you just
1: walk over to the judge if she's not busy or you set an appointment. Like, I, I'm, I'm very curious as to the, how, the mechanics of it, like how it actually works. Let's say you're in the grand jury. I'm asking Cuccinelli... Yeah. What he said with the president, we'll go over some of these things in a minute, and he says, "I, I, that's probably privileged.
0: What happens next? So I have seen this, I mean, particularly it happens frequently in, in civil cases, like in the middle of a deposition event, lawyers will get the judge on the phone to arbitrate something like this. I haven't seen it I, in the many times I've been in front of a grand jury. You know, I didn't, it was me testifying and I wasn't <laughs> playing any privilege, so I didn't that didn't play out that way, but um, I think that's a possibility. Now in like a super high profile case like this, where they're going to make some elaborate claim of, of executive privilege, it's the sort of thing that the judge would probably tee up for some kind of a motion, um, you know, let the, the witness's attorney file, you know, a claim and then the DOJ would respond. And so the whole thing would take it could take a couple of weeks to resolve. But um, the point is like, this is what DOJ does. A lot of times, Andrew, what will happen is is, is that, uh,
1: you know, like somebody like Greg Jacob or Mark Short will be like, yeah, I'm happy to tell you this. And then Trump will come in with a motion. No, I am filing to block this. And then we'll have to go through all the hearings. And he's doing this pretty much every time somebody that's high profile wants to talk. And uh, at least from the little bit of reporting that we're getting, again, these are, these are all uh, still under seal. I know that the media is trying to get them. CNN and Politico have filed a request to have these things released, and they will, I think, eventually be released, but not not right now. Um, and yeah. so, and and you know, you said when you sat there with your DOJ minder next to you, you were happy to answer these questions, but they said no, there's privilege. And it, during this deposition, the one six committee deposition, Ken Cuccinelli had said at 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 all these points when they when he uh, you know asserted privilege they would ask do, do you know the answer to the question and he would say yes and he would say if the privilege thing were figured out would you tell us yeah absolutely i would tell you but i'm not going to do that yeah. until you know and they're like well biden here says there's no privilege and he's like yeah i want to hear it from the former president too and their legal team so uh, and i know Hirschman yeah. also had said that they they wanted these privilege fights uh, figured out before they just went in uh, but i but i don't know how excited or happy to tell the committee Cuccinelli was actually about these things, you know. Uh, whereas I, I think maybe Pat Cipollone probably was more, you know. I would love to tell you, uh, Cuccinelli might have just been saying, "Oh, I'd love to tell you," but you know, there's privilege. I but I can't. Yeah. I couldn't really tell because of the way he was sort of being a little bit not being able to recall a lot of things until they were presented yeah. to him.
0: So. And to be clear, like I don't, I don't want to be too flippant about it. The privilege is a real thing, and people, witnesses, will go in and claim executive privilege is a reason not to answer a question, because you know, oftentimes they legitimately believe it is privilege. But, but even more broadly, they feel, and this I think you definitely could apply to the to the two paths, uh, Cipollone and Philbin, they feel a duty to protect the office of the presidency and. And, and particularly under questioning from Congress, they don't want to give up any ground and, and you know, in and, and essence, reset the bar for executive privilege lower than what it may have been. Their interest is in protecting the presidency, and they don't want to be the witness who goes in and testifies to a bunch of stuff that then sets a new, a more kind of intrusive precedent for Congress to come in the next time and say, well, you know... No, we get this kind of information, we can force you to answer these questions because people have answered them before. So there are some, there are legitimate motivations behind some of these fights, um, but you also, particularly during the Trump administration, you saw them using it as a gag, essentially, as a way of silencing um, witnesses from saying anything about anything they might have heard second or third hand that maybe originated um, in the White House, which is you know, a bit ridiculous.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and there were five things, Andrew, that I found in those 150 pages that he would not answer because of executive privilege. The first is that there's at least one email about the 2020 election or January 6th between Ken Cuccinelli and Mark Meadows that he would not produce to the committee, at least one. Uh, the second thing, uh, he said Donald asked him if the DHS could seize voting machines but he wouldn't talk about the discussion any further because of the privilege concerns. But Trump asked him if DHS could seize voting machines. Uh, he had discussions with the president about, uh, the former president, about being named special counsel. Remember when Donald was trying to name somebody special counsel of investigating election fraud, even though only yep. the attorney general can do that? Um, so yep. there, were, there were discussions that he was going to be named special counsel. He admits those discussions happened. He remembers them, but he will not give details. Um, Now, he also said he reached a conclusion about whether it would be appropriate to appoint a special counsel, but he would not share that conclusion because he said that was a recommendation he made to the president of the United States. And Cuccinelli had a conversation with Trump in the Oval Office on January 5th about the role of Congress in counting electoral votes and about the role of Vice President Mike Pence. Mike Pence. In counting electoral votes, he wouldn't say what his conclusions about what their roles were or were not, but he did have those discussions, and he said they were covered by privilege, and would not give details about the recommendations he made to the president in the Oval Office the day before the attack on the Capitol. So those, I imagine, are some of the questions that the the, the, the you know the Jack Smith grand jury uh, is going to want to know about, and of course. Andrew, we don't know if this appearance for the grand jury, before the grand jury is his first or second or third. We don't know if the privilege issues have been um, settled or if today is the first day they're going to come up and then will need to be settled at a later date. Those kinds of things we don't... uh, Well, I can't tell you because it's privileged. No, those are just things that we don't know at this point. But he was seen and he did talk to Jack Smith's grand jury and those are the things that i imagine the department of justice will eventually successfully get the answers to
0: i think they'll get some of them i mean i i really do i think these are this is an interesting array of questions you know some of them you can see if it's a if it, if, the, if the question calls for an answer that's a direct um you know a conversation that the witness had with the president in the oval office in the course of their duties yada yada that's a, a, not a crazy claim of privilege However, you know, if you're arguing against it, if you're on the Jack Smith team, there's all kinds of things that you could you could throw into that conversation to try to chip away at it. Um, you know, there's the crime fraud exception that might, you could make the argument that they were, you know, if it was a conversation essentially about, you know, the appointment of fraud you know, fraudulent electors, that maybe that's not going to be covered by privilege. There's also the the question of whether or not the current president has waived the privilege over those conversations or conversations involving those people because traditionally and this is not a perfectly settled area of the law but traditionally it's been seen that the the issue of executive privilege has to be asserted by the current president as a former president you don't get to assert it um although there is some wiggle room in that i think um Privileged scholars will will say that the Supreme Court rulings in this area have kind of left open the question of what sort of uh, authority does a former president have to protect his uh, his conversations with associates and counselors from his, from his time there. Um, but in any case, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. And if it does go into litigation, um, you know we should you know we may get to we may get to track it quite closely.
1: Yeah, looking forward to seeing that uh, how those privilege battles played out. I assume we will get some answers uh, to that, and and there might be a new precedent set in in the court uh, about what a former president can assert executive privilege over, or maybe not. We will find out, uh, I think. But we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back. We're going to end the show on a very interesting note with some breaking news about the Durham investigation. It's everything we thought, and worse, Andrew. And um, we'll get to it just right after this quick break. Stay with us. All right. Welcome back. So we had some breaking news uh, Thursday from the New York Times. uh, And I had been following the Durham probe very closely, particularly the Danchenko indictment, the indictment of Mike Sussman. uh, And then even before that uh, we had Klein smith who was an fbi lawyer plead guilty to changing some verbiage in an email when uh i guess that had to do with the carter page fisa warrant uh but my but my assertion the entire time in the durham probe was durham's got nothing they're traipsing all over the world spending your taxpayer dollars trying to find crimes trying to talk to chris Steele, trying to talk to mifsud trying to talk you know that's why they were in italy they went to italy they went to australia to talk to alexander downer they went everywhere trying to discredit the investigation that uh, you took part in crossfire hurricane even as go- going as so far as to sue everyone who was part of it only to be sanctioned for that um for close to a million dollars <laughs> yeah um but now uh, we've got some very interesting reporting on this Durham probe. But first, I want to ask you about a couple of these things. Um, let's talk about how Durham. The first thing that really caught my attention, and you know, if anybody knows Inspector General Horowitz, you know Inspector General Horowitz. But he put out a what? he put out a whole uh, Inspector General report on the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, uh, and and he. His finding was that the FBI opened it properly. There was a, a tip from a, a a foreign friend, which was Australia's Alexander Downer, uh, who, who said, hey, this guy Papadopoulos is roaming around the countryside saying that uh, they're going to get some hacked Russian emails from Hillary's thing and all this dirt and stuff. So all of a sudden, I think it was July, um, it was within a couple of, over a weekend, I think, you opened this investigation based on that tip. And and Horowitz found it was opened properly. There was no political influence in opening the investigation. And John Durham lobbied Horowitz to omit that from his report. He said, can you yes. not say that in your report? And that blows my mind.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't even know where to start with this thing because it's been such a... Uh, <laughs> It's been such a black cloud just kind of following all of us around for so many years now. Got to, we're going to be close to like four years on this thing. And we will tie it to Jack um, Smith,
1: I promise. It is it is, yes, per, it is relevant. Yeah. So, there's but a there's we'll a cautionary
0: tale for all special counsels here to look at the poor example set for you by John Durham and conduct yourself in a different way. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so, yeah, you're right. To, to kind of briefly summarize the history, it's 2016. Well... 2015, right, even the fall of 2014, we see all kinds of, we, the FBI, see all kinds of Russian malign cyber activity. Um, we know they're up to something. They're taking all kinds of things. We're watching it very closely because that's what we do, right? We watch the Russians. We're very concerned about their their constant targeting of the United States. So as we're getting closer and closer to 2016, the activity is picking up. It's picking up. We're watching it. Um, now we're into the campaign. Um, It's, we see, uh, you know, the tipping point is when we see the Russians take information that they'd stolen from the DNC and literally weaponize it against a candidate for the presidency, that being Hillary Clinton. Like, they, they dump all those emails, right, right on the eve of the Democratic National Convention. So this is really curious I mean, you know, this is, this is bad. What are the Russians doing? It's the first time we've seen from, from kind of uh, hostile cyber activity, really like the weaponization of that, um, of that information that's been stolen against it, you know, in an effort to impact the political process. So it's with that concern that we, we then hear uh, from a mm-hmm. I will just refer to them as a friendly foreign diplomat because I have um, I've never acknowledged in public who that was, although many other people do. Um, I we hear from them that there was a conversation with this young man named George Papadopoulos months earlier in May of 2016. That he said that he was working for the campaign and that the Russians had basically offered to provide exactly this sort of assistance to the Trump campaign. So it's with that, that's the tipping point, right? Knowing that Papadopoulos made this comment to a very reliable, you know, uh, uh, a friend, source, whatever, um... And then, of course, that's exactly what seems to have happened. So that's what led us to open Crossfire Hurricane. We opened Crossfire Hurricane as the umbrella case, and it consists of four cases against you know four individual cases against Paul Manafort, Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, and now I'm forgetting the fourth one. Oh, Mike Flynn! How can I forget Mike Flynn? (laughs) Good old Mike. Yeah. So that's it. That's how it starts. We don't. We. The team working this issue in the counter uh, counterintelligence division at headquarters, they don't have uh, really uh, any knowledge of what later becomes the Chris Steele reporting. That reporting had come in, went to New York, bounced around for a while, never really landed in the right hands at headquarters. So people like Pete Strzok and Bill Priestap and others who were who were kind of central to this concern that we had about the Russians. And now we felt like we needed to open a case. And they opened that case at the end of July. Um, they didn't know about the details of the steel reporting at that point. And this has been a point of contention in every one of the seemingly 200 investigations of us and what we did. Um, and from the beginning, we've said like, yeah, no, we didn't We didn't have that. We weren't thinking about the steel reporting when we opened the case because we don't really know about it. A right. few weeks later, we find out about it, and then of course it becomes um, a part of ultimately what becomes the Carter Page FISA application, the first one.
1: Yeah, and and so now we've got uh, a special counsel. Well, I I don't know if he was special counsel at the time. To- yeah, he, I think he was special counsel at the time. Telling the inspector general, hey, leave that out of your report. You you found That's that right. it was it was open properly. Leave that. Let's give a modern day. I mean, that was only, what, five years ago, but let's give a modern day or three years ago, but a, a Jack Smith hypothetical. That would be like Jack Smith going to the DOJ inspector general. Now, as we know, the inspector general opened investigations into itself, the Department of Justice, uh, not not the IG, but the Department of Justice, uh, with regard to the uh, what they did in response to the attack on the Capitol, or didn't do in response to the attack on the Capitol. Right. That investigation was opened on January twenty fifth, and then on January fifteenth, there was an investigation into their the DOJ's actions, like the Jeff Clark stuff, right? Like, what did you do, uh-huh. with, you know, with, with the electors and stuff right. like that? Those were opened like within a couple of weeks of the attack on the Capitol, and then i and we know in October of twenty twenty one, Merrick Garland said, "Whatever the IG recommends to me, I will do." Now, it seems as though the IG has finished uh, their little wrap up because it, it appears that the IG recommended or during the course of the inspector general's investigation, seized the phone of Jeffrey Clark, seized the phone of John Eastman, uh-huh. because it was, in fact, inspector general officers who were there doing those things. Uh, but now let's say Jack Smith goes to the inspector general. Let's say the inspector general finishes his report and he found out that actually Jeffrey Clark uh, didn't do anything. He didn't even write those letters. Uh, he, you know, he, that letter to Georgia and, you know, he, he, um, he was really, it was this guy Waldron that did it and he was just sort of there to hand it off to the president. That would be like Jack Smith saying, great, can you not put that in the report? Cause I really want to indict this Jeffrey Clark fella. <laughs> that would, yeah, that
0: exactly. would
1: be the equivalent of that. Can you imagine the heads that would explode on the uh, Jim well, Jordan subcommittee well, cool. of the judiciary if, if they found that
0: out? Yeah. Let's go one step further. That would be like the IG, the IG in your hypothetical saying, well, this is what I found. I, this is my conclusion based on the evidence I found, and I'm putting it in my report. And then he puts the report out. And then Jack Smith going to the media and saying, I disagree with his conclusion, and I I disagree with it based on all this incredible evidence I've uncovered in my ongoing investigation. That's what John Durham did. And Talk when, about that. When. Talk yeah, about that so too, because th-
1: that's that's a really out. bad thing. Also, is talking about is going against all DOJ policy by talking about your investigation.
0: That's right. So there, um, yeah. So the Harwood's report comes out, and it basically two major conclusions. The one is that despite having reviewed millions of documents, millions of text messages, and literally, I'm not like hyperbolically saying millions. He concludes that there's no evidence that any of these decisions that we made in opening the case or, you know, different things that we did along the lines of the investigation were motivated by political bias. Despite all the crazy texts you heard about between Pete and Lisa and everybody else, he concludes that those two didn't actually make any final decisions on any of this stuff. And we had reasons, good reasons, for doing the things we did. Now, the second big conclusion is about the Carter Page FISA. He found all kinds of um, mistakes with the Carter Page FISA. And then, of course, the Kevin Kleinsmith revelations. And that's another whole hornet's nest, very different. But John Durham doesn't like the fact that Michael Horowitz essentially gave us a clean bill of health on the politicization thing. And so he comes out. Immediately after, both he and William Barr make public statements to the media that they disagree with the IG's conclusion, and they suggest, and I think in the case of Barr, explicitly states that he disagrees with it based upon all this, quote-unquote, evidence he's found in his investigation. Now, four years later, where are we? Nowhere. Nowhere. He's brought two cases that don't have anything to do with how or why this crossfire hurricane was opened, and still nothing. And yet, John Durham did exactly what you were absolutely not supposed to do when you were in charge of an ongoing investigation in the Department of Justice. He basically talked about it to the media. He acknowledged it, which was already publicly acknowledged. So that's not a big thing. But he basically... Kind of tried to throw shade on Michael Horowitz's conclusion by by referencing, oh, having found all this evidence of criminal activity in my own investigation, the same thing, the same thing that the, that Horowitz at DOJ yelled at me about
1: mm-hmm. when
0: <laughs> ultimately led to me getting fired, which was bullshit for totally different reasons, but never nevertheless. I can't <laughs> go too far down this rabbit hole. We'll be here all night. but No, it's cool.
1: We got to swear out of you, though, and I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a rare one. John Durham <laughs> did not conduct himself, even according to DOJ policy, much less like an effective, capable, credible investigator. And this article in the New York Times, if you have the time, I strongly suggest you read it. It lays out in great detail basically the fact that William Barr, and John Durham ginned up, ginned up an illegitimate investigation for the purpose of exacting retribution on Donald Trump's perceived political enemies. He ginned up an investigation, no reason, and used it to go after people. He did exactly what he claimed he was trying to investigate us for. He claimed he's had to investigate whether the FBI ginned up crossfire hurricane for political reasons to go after to go after Donald Trump. And he did that by ginning up his own investigation and doing exactly exactly that. It is just it's the hypocrisy and quite frankly, the corruption involved mm-hmm. in this thing. and it and Adam Goldman and Willie Rashbaum and their colleagues at the Times do an amazing job of laying it out in detail in that article. Yeah,
1: savage and Benner. And let's talk about that because one of the big main right wing talking points was that the corrupt deep, deep state FBI was uh, using the Steele dossier with Russian disinformation to spy on me, spy on my campaign, uh, and you know get the to get the Carter Page FISA warrant. When actually, yeah. what was happening at that same time was that Durham was using Russian disinformation seeded in memos that we got from Dutch intelligence. Uh, that said, Hillary was trying to, you know, make up this whole Russian thing against her opponent, Donald Trump. They used that uh, disinformation to get emails from a private citizen, uh, uh, somebody who worked for uh, uh, George Soros, right, uh, Bernardo? Yeah. So they were actually. Yeah, this is a
0: little bit un. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me to talk about because a lot of this stuff is. It was. I assume it still is very highly classified. And the simple fact that the Times talks about it in their article doesn't assume, doesn't mean it's no longer classified. But well, so the I'm, Dutch are I'm very in a upset. A bit of a tight spot here. Yeah. But um, yeah. So there. So John Durham went into court and tried to access the private emails of a U.S. citizen using what. Many people believed was likely kind of bogus Russian intelligence, essentially, and he lost. The judge said, "No, that's not no good. You're not you're not there." And having having had his lawyer lose that fight, he then went in himself and reargued it in person, and lost again. So. Um, What you see, I think, across the arc of this investigation is like just an unrelenting focus on trying to prove the conclusion that they had the day they opened the investigation. William Barr and John Durham had decided before investigating anything that we had committed a crime, that we had been political in the work that we did, that we had intentionally targeted Donald Trump and and gone after him with some level of, like, zeal that we didn't use against Hillary Clinton when she was in trouble, or that we had been duped by a Clinton campaign that was hell-bent on surreptitiously convincing the FBI to open a case on Trump. And none of that is true. It wasn't true when they dreamed it up in some some, some night sitting alone in Barr's office drinking scotch together, which apparently that happened with some regularity as well. It's not true today. And I think you look at the performance of John Durham across the scope of this <laughs> investigation, and it bears that out. Like, what has he brought? Two incredibly ill-advised, weak cases, both of which he lost a trial against Michael Sussman and against um, Danchenko. I can't remember. Is it Victor Danchenko? I don't remember his first name. But in any case, um, the whole yeah, thing people is resigned. a resigned fail. Yeah, people
1: People resigned over that too. There yeah. were, uh, you know, yeah. at, at the There was a lot of uh, roiling going on inside in this investigation, um, and you know, and and but the f- the final thing that I wanted to ask you about um, is that, and I I was joking, I was joking when I tweeted out a couple of years ago, wouldn't it be funny if Durham indicted Trump, like if <laughs> if during yeah. this investigation. Yeah. Durham indicted he Trump. He had
0: no idea where. <laughs> Little what did I know you were going.
1: Yeah, because in October, when uh, October twenty nineteen, when Barr put Durham on the case as a U.S. attorney to investigate the origins of the thing, um, of the Russian investigation, he.
0: <laughs> he, well, he, he it's, it him... all comes down to the infamous uh, sojourn in Italy, right? Yeah,
1: and it does. And we talked about that because I knew that Mifsud was going to be deposed in Italy. And I was like, they're going to go over there. They, tri- they they went to London to shake down Steele. They, uh, they went to Australia to shake down Alexander Downer. And they're going to Italy to see if they could shake down Mifsud. And <laughs> so they get there. And so many very interesting things happened in Italy with Papadopoulos and Simona, his girl. We could talk for, you and I could talk for days, but Simona Mengiante, remember? But uh, we. we, Oh, yeah. So I was like, oh my God, they're over there trying to shake this down. They're trying to get, they're trying to find anything they possibly can, which means they have nothing. And I tweeted that as well. But apparently, Italy told, uh, gave a, a, a tip to Barr and Durham uh, about Donald Trump, some financial crime that Donald Trump allegedly committed. And it was such a serious tip that they couldn't ignore it. So Barr had Durham investigate it, and then Durham didn't charge. Uh, Here we've got Merrick Garland just appointing a special counsel for everybody who, who has anything, and now we've got this totally secret crime that just kind of gets put on Durham's plate and then, of course, is brushed under the carpet. And I'm wondering, my question here, for two questions, first of all, and we only have a couple minutes left, but that was when he was a U.S. attorney and not a special counsel, but he became a special counsel. I feel like there should be a declination. Uh, you know, special counsel regs require you make a declination uh, a pronouncement, I guess, to Congress in some sort uh-huh. of a report. It should be in his report. That crime, he investigated it, should be in his report. Either that or nothing before he was named special counsel in December of 2020 should be in the report, but whatevs. Uh, and then second, why is Merrick Garland letting this go on? Can't he fire this guy for cause now that we know all this has happened? We just found this out. He must have known this. I mean, telling that lobbying the IG to lie in a report by omission, that seems like cause to fire a special counsel. Hanging out, having bourbon it's- with the I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, and it's a it's a good question. So this 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 revelation is, is again credit to the times because this is the first time I think anyone has ever heard this. I don't know how they came across this fact that they went over there looking for you know dirt on pe- you. people, the FBI and in the intelligence community, me included. And what they came back with was apparently really um, uh, concerning information about financial transactions involving Trump. And so at that point, what they should have done was handed that off to a competent US attorney's office to investigate it, or maybe given it to a new special counsel. But instead, they gave it to, to, to John Durham, whose remit, whose, whose, you know, whose reason for being had nothing to do with investigating Donald Trump for financial crimes. But now this is on his plate. But it's not just that. It gets worse because shortly after he then gets grand jury authorization. So the, so the AG gives him the authority to go convene a grand jury to investigate this this Trump uh, information. And lo and behold, the media finds out about it and they start publishing stories that saying, wow, it looks like Durham has a grand jury now. That must mean he has come up with some criminal information or evidence against, people who are the subject of the Durham inquiry, i.e. FBI, CIA, what have you. Well, Durham and Barr very cagely allowed the media to completely misrepresent that fact to the country. They were very comfortable with the whole country being misled about both the status of the Durham inquiry and the existence of apparently a Trump inquiry. So, um, yeah, it's just... And and here we are, years later. There's still no Durham report. I'm told uh, that people believe he's writing it. When it will be ready, uh, well, I guess only he knows. Um, and maybe he'll address all this in, re- in his report. I hope so. It should include what he did to investigate Trump and why he decided that it was going nowhere. Um, you know, something's telling me that after reading the article in The Times yesterday, maybe he had to go back and add a few sections to his report, but we'll see. <laughs> Uh, there's a noted lack of transparency about this aspect of what John Durham was doing. But you know what? I'll be waiting for that report to come out. I will read it closely, and I'll be happy to talk to uh, all of our listeners about what's in there.
1: Well, I personally have emailed the Department of Justice and asked them to remove Durham for cause. Um, I, I'm not even sure that this doesn't warrant an investigation, Um Per obstruction personally, but I mean, maybe I'm wishful thinking. Uh, I tend to do that, but you know, for those who think I never get mad at Merrick Garland or the Department of Justice, I'm pretty upset as to why he's John Durham is still If if Garland knew all this, I, I don't understand why John Durham is still there and why he didn't come out. Give us a press conference or something, uh, address it. Uh, a Senate. The judiciary Dems, call Merrick Garland in and ask him about this. Please do something. Uh, That would be nice. Maybe call your reps (laughs) or or hit up the Senate Judiciary uh, and see if we can get old Merrick Garland to come in and answer, hey, you mind telling us why it's cool for one of the special counsels that works for you to tell an inspector general to omit shit from his report? We think that that's probably a bad thing and he should be fired for cause. Why haven't you done that? I would just like to get these. I have questions, brother. Okay. That's all. Rant finished. You know I still love our institutions, uh, but uh, I do have some very serious questions about that, as I'm sure you do too, Andrew.
0: Yeah. We have lots of questions, very few answers, but that's all right. It gives us plenty of things to talk about as we learn more.
1: Yeah. And so the way that this ties in with Jack Smith is this is not how you act, Jack Smith. I don't think we need to tell you that. But also, I'm wondering if this Trump little Trump crime from Italy could Jack pick that up as part of his investigation. I would like to know.
0: Well, I mean, it's it, a que- that's a good one. It's hard to imagine how that would ever. It look, it's hard to imagine how it ever fit within John Durham's remit, and it's even harder to figure out how it would fall into uh, Jack Smith's. But hey, let's let's you know. Let's hear DOJ weigh in on that one. Yeah,
1: agreed. Thank you all so much again. If you have a question for Andrew. You can send it in to us at uh, hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line, and that will get over to us from our wonderful production team. Thank you to patrons of this show. We really appreciate you, and we just are so thankful that you listened. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here, Andrew?
0: No, every every week I think you know. Wow, this is going to be a quicker show this week. We're going to go a little bit lighter, and here we are pushing the pushing the envelope once again. So I hope uh, hope everyone's enjoyed it. I've certainly had fun uh, going over all this stuff with you again, as always, Allison. And so yeah, I'm Andrew McCabe. I'm Allison Gill, and we'll see you next week.
1: MSW
0: Media.